For almost 2,000 years, the Catholic Church has pointed the way toward salvation through Jesus Christ. For each of us, that journey starts in darkness, as if in a cave. We invite you now to come with us as we seek wisdom and truth by way of faith and reason with your guides, Mark Tuttle and Timothy O'Donnell. Join us in the Catholic Cave. Welcome once again to the Catholic Cave. I'm Kent Blanford in the cave with me, Mr. Mark Tuttle, Mr. Timothy O'Donnell. And this morning we have a special guest joining us by phone, David Devil. And he's been on the on the program before. He's he's now officially friend. honorary caveman. Exactly. He's starting to get the little fuzzy paws going there. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's the wardrobe change when you gotta wear like that Fred Flintstone thing out in out and about in the public. That's when you're that's when you're all in. That's when you're committed. <laughs> well, we're we're excited to have Dr. Devil with us. Dr. Devil is a visiting assistant professor of Catholic Studies and co-director of the Terrence Murphy Institute for Catholic Thought, Law, and Public Policy at the University of St. Thomas. He's joining us from uh, St. Paul, Minnesota this morning, and we're going to talk a little bit about the dissident writer um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and um, Dr. Devil, um, a lot of our listeners are probably not all that familiar with uh, Solzhenitsyn. And, Sadly. And, and who Sadly. he was. got to correct that. But yeah, I mean, he was, a, uh, he was a towering figure of the late 20th century. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Solzhenitsyn and uh, why, he's, uh, why he's, I guess, increasingly relevant to today? Yeah, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Tim. The, uh, Solzhenitsyn is, uh, is an incredibly important figure because he wrote about the tyranny uh, during the, the Soviet era in, in Russian life. And <clears throat> this is something that a lot of people have said, you know, we're looking at something that is very scarily like, <laughs> like that uh, in many parts of American culture, uh, you know, with people in Antifa and, and other, other far-left groups who are declaring that they're going to take over. And Solzhenitsyn gives us a sort of diagnosis of, of the human condition under under that kind of tyranny, and also bids us to understand what we need to do to keep our freedom and how to use that freedom. He was born just as, uh, as the revolution in Russia was kicking off in 1918, so he was kind of a, a, a baby of the Russian Revolution. Uh, he had, his father was a Cossack, his mother was of Ukrainian uh, extraction, and he was raised by his mother. His dad died uh, as he was an infant. He was raised by his mother and grandmother to, to be a kind of believer, but as, as a child in that situation would, he kind of moved astray from, the, uh, from, that, from that kind of belief, and he became, <coughs> he became a, you know, a kind of convinced Marxist. And he studied uh, in university, and then during World War II, he served as an officer in an artillery battalion. And it was then that he, he got in trouble. Uh, he was a, you know, a twice-decorated Order of the Red Star yeah. commander, but he had made the mistake of criticizing Uncle Joe, Joe no. Stalin. <laughs> that's a, that's a big him. no-no. That is yeah. a big no-no. They, they didn't like that. <laughs> yes, and even though it was in the form of jokes, um, you know, there was, there was no plot to do anything or anything like that. But nevertheless, the letters were, were discovered by, uh, you know, by one of the uh, other officers. Uh, he was ratted on, and he was sentenced under Article 58 of the Soviet Code. And Article 58 was the political, 
the political the political uh, article and basically as he describes in the Gulag Archipelago basically you could put anybody in prison for anything under article 58 he was he had a sentence to an 8 year term in the camps uh, so he served that from 1945 to to 1953 and then <clears throat> after that he he spent about another 2 years because those eight years, the eighters would turn into tenors quite easily. Mm. Um, by 1954, he was out, uh, and he was sentenced to internal exile uh, and went to Kazakhstan. So this is something that, that the Soviet government did, is that even if you got out of prison, then you couldn't go back to your own home because they wanted to keep everybody separate. So he went there. Um, he suffered a bout of cancer, and that became the basis for his novel Cancer Ward, uh, he then uh, uh, was able to start working as a as a teacher, a high school teacher. He had studied physics and mathematics, but during all of that time, he had been writing. He had he had considered himself to have the vocation of a writer. And for Russians, uh, a writer has something like the status of a prophet. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, I think a Dr. Zhivago. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And, and, you know, this is the thing. So he, he considered this his, his main task, and he did this on the side. Um, his memoir, The Oak and the Calf, sort of talks of, uh, about this, about what he had to do in terms of all of the, all of the different details of hiding manuscripts and only uh, entrusting them to certain people, things like that. Um, in... Uh, in 1962, he had a break. He had approached the people at one of the most important literary journals in the Soviet Union with a work, a novella, called One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. And it purported mm-hmm. to tell the story of an ordinary Zek, a prisoner in the Soviet camps, uh, and from, day, from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. And they were interested in publishing this. And it was one of the first times in which anybody had, had been able to, to publish something uh, for real that told about what was going on in the Soviet Union in terms of these camps uh, mm. in which so many people had been thrown in under Article 58 charges, basically for anything that anybody didn't like. Um, this sort of catapulted him to the, to the top of the... Uh, to, you know, to the top of the literary world in Russia, but it also put a kind of a mark on his head mm. because he dared to tell the truth. Um, he continued to, to, to write. He had a difficulty publishing, but he eventually published Cancer Ward, the, mem- the, the, the novel based on his own time in a cancer ward, and then in the first circle uh, uh, eventually. Uh, but the problem was it was very difficult to be able to speak openly in the Soviet Union. And so eventually the Soviets decided that they didn't really want to kill him and make him a martyr because he'd become too famous at that point. So in 1973, they exiled him to the West. And at that point, he had found out that one of the, a woman who had kept part of his manuscript that was his, it became his three-volume work on what it was like to live in the camps, the Gulag Archipelago. She had been tortured for five days uh, straight. She had been kept awake and tortured, and she had given up parts of his manuscript. At that point, he said, I'm going to just publish this, because he had had copies that were abroad. So he published the Gulag Archipelago. That was the thing then that, that kind of opened people's eyes.
Um, Richard Brookheiser, a historian, said that if Solzhenitsyn taught people one thing in the 20th century, it was the meaning of gulag. Um, sadly, I think many people have now forgotten that lesson. I saw, yeah. I, I saw actually a poll recently that, that uh, you know, millennials and, and Gen Z, the sort of young adults and, and teenagers, don't even really know what happened in the Holocaust, much less the gulag. Um, which is kind of a sign of why you know why so many people are approaching. Well, we need socialism. Socialism is wonderful. <laughs> right. They don't know what happened. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. So, so Dr. Devil, I recently read a uh, a comment where someone was comparing um, the British Empire's sending of prisoners to the penal colony of Australia. And they were comparing that to the system of gulags, saying, well, you know, wasn't it the same thing? You know, the, the English sent all their prisoners to Australia. So that was exactly like what the Soviet Union did with the gulags. So can you explain to us a little bit what the, what the system of the gulags was and why it was not just a, you know, ordinary penal colony and, you know, sending somebody to, like, Australia? Yeah. I mean, so here's the biggest difference is that, the prisoners who were sent to Australia were not primarily political prisoners. That Article 58 that Solzhenitsyn was, was imprisoned under was something that was, was used to basically keep, keep ordinary people under, <laughs> under terror constantly. Mm. And so, the, you know, they were not just being sentenced. These were not ordinary criminals, but these were ordinary people quite often who had done nothing. In fact, many times, and this was actually in the code, you could be sentenced for, for knowing somebody or being related to somebody who had been accused of something. Um, so this was a, a, a method of keeping an entire population in terror uh, and basically making them uh, think that they could do nothing at all that, could, that, could not, that uh, was not subject to punishment and that was, was not wrong. Um, and this, this archipelago that, that uh, Solzhenitsyn describes, this collection of camps that were spread out, um, they, they were terrible places. Uh, they were filled with, they, they did have actual criminals in them, and the actual criminals often were kind of ruling the roost. Um, but they were terrorizing ordinary people who were, were fed very little and were, were quite often uh, tortured in the camps. Uh, and they were they were kept as prisoners simply at the whim of officials who could decide their fate basically based upon what they felt like. Um, so this is not just a sort of like a prison, but this is something that was internal to the Soviet Union that could be used against anybody for any reason. And it was a symbol of it was a symbol of terror <laughs> for that reason. You know, I mean, the, the Saint Paul tells us, you know. Do not fear, uh, you know, the, the, the sword of the, the temporal rulers, for they punish evil. But this was not punishing evil. This was simply keeping an entire people under the thumb of rulers who, who really were gangsters. We're talking with Dr. David Devil here. He's got a new book out um, that we haven't even got to yet. We're just getting the background on the subject of the new book, which is uh, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, Dr. David Devil, he's been on the show many times before. Great to have him back. He's the asso assistant professor of Catholic studies and co-editor of the Terrence J. Murphy Institute for Catholic Thought, uh, oh, Thought, Law, and Public Policy at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul. 
Uh, but you're also the editor of Logos, and I have just renewed my subscription, by the way. I love Logos. But Thank we're gonna, you, Tim. Oh, yeah, it's great. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll pick up the conversation. And we'll be back with more of the Catholic Cave on Catholic Radio Indy right after this. You're listening to Catholic Radio Indy, converting the culture to Christ through radio, featuring 100% Catholic programming 24-7. Do your friends a favor. Tell them about Catholic Radio Indy. Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Timothy O'Donnell, still in the cave. Mark Tuttle, Kent Blanford, and our special guest, Dr. David Devil from the University of St. Thomas up in beautiful St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, we are about to jump in to his new book, which is called Souls in Eatson and American Culture, The Russian Soul in the West. And this is a fantastic, I just got my copy yesterday, and it's a fantastic collection of essays, uh, including uh, one by you, Dr. Devil. Tell us a little bit about uh, the book, and, and it, it, I think it might be part of a broader project, too, at the University of Notre Dame Press, but, but tell us a little bit about what's going on. That's right. It is a part of a broader project. Uh, the University of Notre Dame has a Solzhenitsyn series, and uh, it's great that we're being published at this collection of essays about Solzhenitsyn and American culture just before they're publishing a new version, a new vision, uh, excuse me, uh, a, new ad- uh, a new edition of Solzhenitsyn's memoirs from, from the West called Between Two Millstones, the second volume. Mm. Uh, so it's part of a broader project of bringing Solzhenitsyn back to people's, back to people's minds and introducing him to them uh, to, in order to teach these lessons. Um, the book, actually, that, uh, that I've, I've published, along with my co-editor, Jessica Hooten-Wilson of the University of Dallas, is a kind of act of piety. Uh, about three years ago, uh, my old professor, Edward Erickson, who worked with Solzhenitsyn on producing a one-volume version of the, of the Gulag Archipelago, he died, and uh, Jessica mm-hmm. called me and said, we ought to do something, you know, in memory of Ed. And what we decided was what, uh, what our mentor uh, had loved about Solzhenitsyn was that he was a Christian and a patriot. And mm-hmm. Ed loved, uh, <laughs> loved the Lord, and he loved, uh, he loved this country. And so we thought Solzhenitsyn's uh, influence on American culture, what he has to say, what his possible influence would be a great idea. And so we gathered a number of incredible scholars in the field of Russian literature and Solzhenitsyn studies in order to put this together. And we've got, we've got great essays in here by Gary Saul Morrison, who's uh, the professor of Slavic studies at Northwestern, that introduces Solzhenitsyn's two great cathedrals, the Gulag Archipelago and also the Red Wheel, which is his multi, Solzhenitsyn's multi-volume novel about the Russian Revolution. We've got some uh, essays, uh, one by Joseph Pierce. Uh, many of your listeners will probably know Joe Pierce as a uh, biographer of Belloc and Chesterton, and he writes about Solzhenitsyn's own connections and his love of great writers like Chesterton and Tolkien and what he has to do with what he has to do with those people. And we've got a lot of a lot of others. We've got about twenty different essays. That are trying to cover cover the ground here about what uh, how to understand Solzhenitsyn and also how to apply him, and that's that's what my chapter is about. So, right now, the the title of the book is Solzhenitsyn and American Culture, and your essay in it, Doctor Devil, is Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. 
and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And so what is the what is the connection there? What's the connection between this Russian dissident writer and the American ideals, which you know, later in life he, he came here and he had a, a he had a sort of interesting relationship, I guess, with the United States after he after he immigrated here. Um, but what what is the the relationship between Solzhenitsyn and the ideals of the founding of the United States? Yeah, well, Solzhenitsyn, after his exile, he spent a little time in Europe, and then he came and he lived in America for twenty years. Uh, and he loved small town Vermont and that sense of of representative democracy, and he loved the virtues of Americans. Uh, but he also saw problems in American culture. And unlike some, <laughs> unlike some uh, observers of American culture, he didn't think that America was rotten from the start. Instead, he said, no, your founders had, had, had it right. They understood that you can only have rights if you have duties. You can only have rights if they are rights that are given to you under God. And so he, in a number of speeches uh, and in a number of essays, he spoke to, to the American experiment and said that we really needed to recover that original sense of being under God. Uh, so my chapter is basically about, about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it analyzes what I think Solzhenitsyn was saying, is that there's a kind of inversion that goes on, that we, we tend to seek out happiness first, and happiness of a rather a rather limited sort, a kind of consumerist, this worldly happiness. And then we and then that corrupts everything. That corrupts what we understand about liberty. We don't desire it as much anymore. And that that also corrupts uh, the idea of life, which should be first. And Solzhenitsyn has an incredible amount to tell us. Uh, because he's as he says in many of his his uh, his lectures that he gave after he moved here, he says, you know, there's a Russian proverb that, that the yes man is your enemy. And he, he wasn't going to be a yes man. He was going to tell us the truth about what were problems. And what's fascinating is that many ordinary Americans responded well to Solzhenitsyn. He was kind of a celebrity when he first came here. But when it became clear that he was criticizing tendencies to a kind of liberal secularism, many of the elites sort of turned their back on him. Well, he might have won the Nobel Prize. But he's a crazy old Russian crank. <laughs> right. <laughs> Especially up there in the northeast part of the country. You could see where the liberals might turn on him. But Exactly. I, but I, I, I love that, that part in the book. Well, the two th- or not in, this, in the essay, I should say, in your essay, the two things that you really put your finger on that you just mentioned that I, had, I, really, I thought was remark- a remarkable insight was that, in, that reversal in the order of what we're actually up to. And I find that in terms of pursuing happiness, then maybe some liberty, and then our abandonment on life, especially as it manifests itself, say, in the culture of death. That was, that was really prescient. And, and then the yes man is, is really not your friend. Your friend is willing to what? Argue, argue with you. And Mark and I are friends, and we argue all the time. We do. No, you don't. And here's the connection I, I, I thought you also made in the, book, in the essay that was really helpful, is, um, and I think it's a broader theme across this, I'm going to find across this whole uh, collection of essays, it's you you seem to keep going back to truth right and truth is you have to have the courage and the fortitude to speak the truth and not participate in fact that's one of his that's one of his famous essays right is right. about not participating by lies <laughs> oh yeah yeah and that's a, that's someone else has a book out by that by by that title yeah. too they brought it which is really important 
But I, I just I, the the other thing I want to mention too is you actually used the I believe you used the word whirly gig in your essay, which I was impressed with because I heard that in a while. But uh, let's get back to on a more serious note. What does Souls and sometimes I've I've heard Souls and Eaton, you know, was somehow anti-American or something like that. Is that is that does that really uh, purchase any any weight with you that Souls and Eaton was some, somehow anti-American? Well, uh, well, I mean, if here's the thing: if Solzhenitsyn was great at making distinctions, and so he was always he was always angry when people would refer to you know when they would confuse the Soviet government with the Russian people, mm. uh, and he would say, no, 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 the the government <laughs> serves the people, and that can be bad, and that was the same thing that that he did with with his approach to America. He thought that the the American government had had problems at times. Although he thought it, you know, our American system was itself much better than the, than the system that the Russians had developed, and and certainly much better than the Soviets. But he also did worry that that American culture, and that was part of his arguing, is he says, you people are not seizing on to what your opportunities are. You don't love liberty enough, and mm. and 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 that's one of the things that uh, that people responded, or like I say, ordinary people responded. When he gave his, his Harvard address, he gave the Harvard commencement address in 1978, it was very critical, uh, uh, you know, of American life. And he says, you know, people ask me, you know, in rebuilding Russia, would I want America to be the model? And I have to say, quite frankly, no. And, you know, that sounds harsh, but, he said, but his point was we'd sort of left behind, in many ways in our culture, all the most important things about liberty under God. And, and what he says in the first volume of his, his memoirs of living in the West, Between Two Millstones, is that although he got bashed in the papers by all the smart people, ordinary people wrote to him and said, you are exactly right about what is going on <laughs> here in America. So, yeah. so he wasn't anti-American. He was anti this false notion of what it means to be an American, of this sort of liberty without responsibility and we can do whatever we want and mm-hmm. and you know who needs god that's the kind of stuff he was against one, yeah. one of the things you po- you pointed to um he he was he intro i would say he almost introduced at least at least um as a kind of a giant literary figure he introduced a different understanding of happiness and maybe talk a little bit about that because he there you know we had we had had this this idea of finding uh, where did he kind of veer from let's say the uh the the contemporary understanding of happiness of his time and and tried tried to offer a different understanding of that word yeah he he thought that happiness had gotten reduced and he said this is the curious thing about you know <laughs> sort of the what the free west so-called and the unfree east where they came together was in reducing everything to, to material goods. Mm. And he mm-hmm. says, well, you know, the, 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 the Soviets promised everybody material goods and you'll all be happy. They couldn't follow through. He said the West uh, has, you know, has produced the goods, but, of course, what we see is that people are, are not happy. We're not made happy by, by uh, the things of this world. And so what he, what he wanted to tell people was, here's the, here's the thing, what is the goal of man's existence, he says, it's not happiness in that narrow sense, but what he said was spiritual growth, mm. right? The development of the human person and flourishing, not just 
you know, not just have, having the most toys and winning, right, but it's spiritual growth and the development of the depths of the, of the human person. And he said, unless you pursue that, right, unless you focus on that and what you have to do, I mean, I think, Tim, you were the one who was pointing to the fact that he had a, an absolute focus on truth. If you don't focus on that truth, right, then you will not have the fuel to, to grow as a person. And I think that's incredibly important for our age. Right, because objective truth, or just truth at all, I think has almost been, I think the younger you get, the more it's been completely abandoned. Right. Um, and that, that is really perilous, I think, for our culture. Yeah, he said one word of truth, right, can defeat evil. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's, that's all you've got to do. And, uh, and trying, to, trying to encourage that in an age in which people just casually lie, uh, they casually lie in public is is an incredible problem. And Solzhenitsyn said, "Well, that's what happened is that uh, you know with with the the Soviet version, truth was not a value at all, and in fact, it was all based on what he calls the ideological lie that is always going to come in when you want to do wrong." <laughs> so, I see that picked up too. I had just uh, I've been on kind of like a, a Soviet Union kick, trying to really understand. Uh, communism, um, and, and and as a way to better understand sort of the the term cultural Marxism that maybe we're we're immersed in now, um, or or at least contending with pretty vigorously. And I read Fulton Sheen's book, um, Communism in the West, and that gave me some really good um, philosophical underpinnings about why communism was so hostile to say things like. Religion and and it's not just Marx, but it's right. Mark Marx who's also channeling like uh, or communist is sort of channeling like Foucault and others that are in, yeah. that are just really um, creating a kind of yeah I might have those out of order. Mark's giving me the hand sign like oh, I think he got it backwards again. So see, he's <laughs> arguing with me, Doctor Devil. He's arguing with me silently. But I, he's your friend, right? He's my friend. That's friendship. But we're, we're coming up on a break, so when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Devil. And I uh, want to pick up, I wanna get, there's, more, there's more in this book I want to get to. And the, the name of the book, again, because it's out, so you can get it, and I highly recommend you get it. Solzhenitsyn and American Culture, The, Rus uh, the Russian Soul in the West by Dr. David Devil and Jessica Hooten-Wilson as co-editors. And we'll be back with more of The Catholic Cave on Catholic Radio Indy right after this. You know us as Catholic Radio Indy, but we're so much more than just radio. We're a voice for the church that's seldom heard in our chaotic world. We're confirmation for the strong of faith and encouragement and answers for those in doubt. We're there to rejoice with your triumphs and to be a voice of consolation through the dark times. We're a voice for vocations and proudly pro-life. We are Catholic Radio Indy and CatholicRadioIndy.org. We are back in the Catholic Cave, still with Timothy O'Donnell, that's me, Mark Tuttle, Kent Blanford, and our special guest and honorary caveman is Dr. David Devil. He is the visiting assistant professor of Catholic studies and co-director of the Terrence J. Murphy Institute for Catholic Thought, Law, and Public Policy at the beautiful University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, I was up there uh, not that long ago in June. I was in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Not that oh, yeah. far away. It was beautiful up Not there. Not too far. Not too far. And I went to the uh, shrine 
of Our Lady of Guadalupe there, which was yes. magnificent. Oh, my gosh. Yes. We loved it up there. Uh, but you're also the editor, and this is uh, something I encourage everyone to pick up, too, is uh, Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. There's only – right now I really only subscri- have two subscriptions. I've had a bunch over the years, but, but here's the two that I have. Logos. I also like the American Catholic Philosophical Association. Those are the those yeah. are the two I, I still like to get hard copies of. I look at a lot of online content, but I really like those um, because then I can go in there and I still like to get out my pen and my highlighter and dog ear pages and stuff like that. But speaking of which, your new book is out, Souls in Eaton and American Culture, The Russian Soul in the West. Uh, you're an editor, a co-editor with uh, Jessica Hooten Wilson, but you also have a essay in there as well, and I, you do the introduction. So yes. um, we've been talking about Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So recap for us, if you would, a little bit. Well, let's go here. So why does – how how do you think Alexander – this is always kind of a precarious question because you, you kind of have to speculate a little bit. What do you think Solzhenitsyn would make of our current setting? Everything yeah. that's happening here as we close out 2020, all the things that have been going on. What, what, what would he recognize America? Yeah, well, this, I mean, this is the problem is that uh, Solzhenitsyn was warning, you know, as we were talking about earlier, Solzhenitsyn was warning the West that when you get rid of truth, right? Or <laughs> which, at least, which we have. Which we have. <laughs> or at least when you, don't, when you don't think that that's the most important thing, and you think that material goods are the most important thing, you know. What you're going to end up with is somebody is going to promise you, you know, the world. And he says, you know, what they'll do is they'll say, well, socialism, socialism will help us all. And then, you know, the, what he said was the kind of the furthest left always wins. So the people who <laughs> say, well, I'm socialist but not communist, they're going to always end up sort of outbidding each other for more control, and you're going to end up in communism. And I think he would say, see what's going on now as, you know, as a very fearful situation, very much like the time before his birth. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, live, live Not by Lies, his famous, famous essay that he wrote. And, and uh, you know, basically he said, you know, this is what we have to do is never cooperate in the lie. He says, you know, let the lie, let the lie go out, but let it not come through me. And, uh, and Rod Dreher, the journalist, his new book is titled Live Not By Lies. It's, it came out just before ours did. And it's basically about people who have, have uh, you know, have been from countries that were, were communists saying, we're seeing the signs, you know, things are happening here that look a lot like what, what happened in mm-hmm. our countries. And so I think Solzhenitsyn would probably, would probably recognize those things, and he would warn us that, you know, if... If you're not going to seek out the truth, if you're not going to, if you're going to forget God, this is what's going to happen. And so I think it's it's ever so important that we rediscover his writings on on these topics, because otherwise we're go- we're not going to be able to have a guide uh, to you know to get through them. You know, one of the okay. uh, you know one of the things that keeps getting brought up, I guess, when the question of 
can it happen here? You know, Sinclair Lewis's book, you know, can it happen here? Can we have a totalitarian regime? Could communism come to America? One of the uh, counter arguments to that almost always is it's not in the American character. You know, there, there, there was something about the Russian character particularly that led from read from czarism to communism to, I guess, Putinism now that, you know, there, there's something in the Russian character that lends itself to totalitarian regimes. And we in America don't have that. Um, you know, you've got kind of the, the, the subtitle of the book, The Russian Soul in the West. What's that distinction there between, I guess, a, a national character and yeah. sort of the, the, the regimes that bring these things about? Well, yeah, I mean... <laughs> So, so the, you know, what you've referred to as the sort of the Asiatic despotism theory. Like, well, people, <laughs> people from out, over in that part of the, the world, they all are subject. They, you know, they, they're kind of not happy unless they're miserable, and so they'll welcome. They'll welcome, you know, whether it's the czar or Stalin or whoever, they need that. Uh, I, and Solzhenitsyn, uh, you know, uh, would acknowledge that culture is important and that history is important and that that Russia has not been as great in terms of their actual politics. Uh, but I, I think he would, he would warn us that, you know, to, to think that you're beyond this sort of temptation, uh, just because you have a national character that, that developed over the centuries, it, you know, you can't count on that, especially when a national character can change. Um, generations can forget uh, the lessons that they learned and the things that, that actually made them what they were. Uh, so I think he would say, yes, national character is, is a real thing, but, you know, don't be under the, under the mistaken notion that because you had a national character that was good, <laughs> a new generation can't just sort of give over the store and, and lead, you in, lead you into a real, a real tyranny. Yeah, I, I find this question of national character fascinating. Um, you know, Nikolai Berdyaev was the, uh, the the Russian philosopher theologian that tried to drill down, identify what that that Russian character was. You know, I think with um, some of the some of the trends behind the scenes in America, I feel is a little bit of a uh, as a, a cultural identity crisis. You know, we've got the the <laughs> very very um, sketchy 1619 project that, that came out of the New York Times. I'm trying to kind that's of that's a whole other show. That we should. I don't believe. I don't like deconstruction philosophically, but I'm willing to right. to, to turn deconstruction towards 1690. But you know, I mean, right. the, 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 but the idea there is, you know, the what we've always believed is the American character is not really the American character. We're we're somebody other than who we who we think. Um, yeah. With with Solzhenitsyn being Russian and and having that kind of Russian character, I guess, to him or, or being from part of the, the Russian national character there. What, what did he bring to the table? What was, what was sort of some of the, the unique perspectives that he was able to, to sort of shine on the U.S., at, particularly as a Russian? Well, I think what he was able to, to see was exactly, <laughs> exactly what, was, what was missing in Russia. Um, one of the things is that, you know, despite all the problems in Russia, they had very lively... Uh, you know, local local communities uh, that the Soviets basically drove out of existence. And so when he came to America, what he saw, particularly in the small towns, uh, particularly in the, you know, the sort of the deplorable areas, was exactly the, the, the kind of goods that had been present in Russia in a different way. But he also saw that what we had, even though we had a kind of better government, he also saw that it was it was liable to manipulation, and he saw that uh, the American character was liable to a manipulation through exactly some of the same ways 
that the that the Russians were, and one of those was sort of you know media media um, malfeasance in terms of only allowing certain messages and certain truths to be known. Uh, he saw the academy being uh, you know the universities and colleges being not places of freedom but places of conformity, and so mm-hmm. all of these things he had seen from Russia. The things that had been that had that had been done there, and so he was able to say, "Look, this can happen to you because you do many of the same things, uh, you give up many of the same freedoms without even having a gun to your head. <laughs> you know, you do right. it simply simply because that's what everybody's doing, or that's what you know that's what they do in universities. Um, so he could he could see that that you don't necessarily have to have a gun to your head to give up freedom." And and he could see that in in sort of the Western character that we you know we we might do that on our own just because hey uh, you know that's that's just the price of having you know having Google or you know having some right. you know having these uh, large tech companies or universities in our presence. Right. You know the the, the novel 1984. Everybody kind of everybody's kind of looking over their shoulders, saying you know. What in our culture resembles Big Brother in 1984, and who would have thought that we would have all voluntarily purchased Big Brother and stuck him in our pockets and, and walk around every day with oh. uh, you know with, with, with some sort of smart device to, to monitor our, our every step and, and everything that we everything that we do? Yeah, there was. I mean, one of the ironies is that in many of his works, in the Gulag Archipelago, as well as in One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. One of the things that Solzhenitsyn noticed was, in, in certain odd ways, there was more freedom when you got into the camp than outside of it. <laughs> because once they had you in the camp, they, you know, they weren't looking for you to, to you know, they Rat weren't looking you out. To, <laughs> right. but yeah. yeah, expose you. Yeah, and, and we, you know, we're, we're now in this sort of, you know, 24-7, everybody's looking and everybody's, you know, looking to rat people out. Um, it, you know, and that's, that that you know that and that's that's one of the things that I think that he would notice about us is that it used to be that you know Americans had an interest in helping each other now you know there's developed this strange interest in snitching on each other and I, that that's 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 a really kind of a dangerous sign when when all of a sudden you're you're looking at everybody as somebody that you can you can tell the authorities on well the the one area there and I, I don't want to get too political but. One area where I see that happening is um, there's an app where you can provide information if you see someone not wearing a mask in an area that they're supposed to. I've never heard of anything like that in America before. Um, To to be able to just kind of with a swipe sort of report someone to to authorities and get and get them in uh, get them in a lot of trouble. But uh, one of the things I wanted to I want to swing back to, uh, we're going to have to take a break here shortly, um, but what, what, kind of, what, what kind of stung when I, when I read your essay about Solzhenitsyn's perspective was that um, we, we talked about stand, you know, this, that, the, um, that the West had lost its kind of courage to stand up for the truth, that yeah. we weren't willing to suffer because if you're going to stand up for the truth, if you're going to, if you're not going to participate in the lie, well, you're going to then face adversity and suffering, and we're just not willing to do that very much. And and I, I thought that he was, uh, he thought that we that the West had abandoned the East because we were no longer because of material comforts 
we were no longer that made us unwilling to secure liberty for others. Yeah. He, I mean, one of the famous lines of Lenin that that Solzhenitsyn liked to uh, liked to quote was the bit about how the the business owners, the capitalists, would sell the rope to the communists, who would then hang them by it. Right. And, oh, gosh. Uh, That's horrible. Know, that, that, yeah, and he he said, you know, this is one of his one of his criticisms was during the Soviet era. He said. You know, the West keeps doing business with us and providing us with goods that basically keeps us going, even though we've, like, tanked our own system. And mm-hmm. so he wanted, you know, he said, well, this is this addiction to goods that people are like, well, we've got to do business with them, but even if they're actually enslaving their own people. And he thought, that's not, that's not, that's not a healthy attitude, and it will end up in you actually being hung by the rope that you've sold to somebody. Uh, and that's that's a kind of a frightening thing that we need to actually make decisions ab- ab- in our in our economic life that are based based on morality uh, and and a, a vision for who the people are in those systems. And you know this applies to our our dealings with China as well, where you yeah. know a million Uyghurs are kept in in slavery as well as millions of other people in various places. Um, so it's it's a huge challenge to us. And we'll take a look at that challenge and other things, along with Dr. David Devil on The Catholic Cave, right after this. You're listening to Catholic Radio Indy, converting the culture to Christ through radio, featuring 100% Catholic programming 24-7. Do your friends a favor, tell them about Catholic Radio Indy. Welcome back to The Catholic Cave. I'm Mark Tuttle, here with Timothy O'Donnell and Kent Blanford, and we have with us also Dr. David Devil who is an assistant professor of Catholic studies at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. And we are talking about a brand new book that just came out, um, edited by Dr. Devil and uh, Jessica Hooten Wilson on Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And it is on American culture and how the lessons from the, the Soviet dissident writer, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, are very appropriate and very enlightening for um, our current situation and, and what's going on um, in America. And um, you know, we've talked about lots of different aspects of Solzhenitsyn. One thing we haven't touched upon a little bit is sort of how religion ties into it. Um, you know, Solzhenitsyn was known as a political theorist. He was known as, a, I think, probably a moral thinker as well. But um, one of the lesser-known aspects of him was as a was as a Christian, as a theologian. So, what kind of theological insights does Solzhenitsyn bring to the table? Well, you know, what what's interesting is that he he really brings the experience of conversion, and that's seen in his mm. his three-volume work, the Gulag Archipelago. As I said at the beginning. You know, he was a kind of convinced Marxist who began to grow sour on Stalin, and then he realized that this whole thing was, was, was kind of a farce. And when he was in the Gulag, uh, the, you know, he talks about this, this crystallized experience of suddenly realizing that justice is the cornerstone of the universe, and that the, the just one was behind this. And it led to his conversion in the camp. Um, and so, you know, this discovery that justice and the just one, <laughs> right, God, who is behind this all, has to be the center of things, um, also led him to understand the doctrine of providence. And so what's, what's curious to, you know, people who, who expect his books to be truly sort of political rants against the Soviets, what they discover is that he, although he's 
arguing constantly against the ideological lie. He's arguing against the violence of the system. He's also at the same time giving thanks to God that he experienced these, you know, all of these these horrible things because they brought him back to back to the Lord. And he returned to his his orthodox Christian faith. He had a great respect then for figures like uh, Pope John Paul II, who fought who fought against mm-hmm. the Soviet tyranny. Uh, but but you know but it's those uh, those ideas that that God is a God of justice who will who will actually make things right, and not only that but that He has a providential plan that human beings, if they could only turn their eyes toward God, if they would only not forget God, could suddenly see and gain that sort of spiritual growth that, as we said before, is really the goal of the human person. Yeah, another another aspect that, that jumps out at me when you read Solzhenitsyn is, are, are those little moments of love that, that seem to bubble up to the surface as, as he's talking about, you know, the, the horrible conditions in the camps and things like this. And then you get these moments of humanity and moments of love that, that, that tend to bubble to the surface that, I mean, you really, to a certain extent, you can only have that when you've got kind of a, a religious understanding and sort of a religious background behind the characters. That's right. I mean, he, he I mean, he, it's, it's, it's sort of strange to people when they read some of his stuff because he, has, he almost has this sort of like, you know, uh, well, it's sort of almost a nostalgic longing for his time in prison. He talks about it as the most important time of his life. And why is that? Because he was able to see these people who acted in conscience, and he was able to hear the stories of people who did these things. I mean, you know, he also saw not, you know, not just love, but also incredible backbone. Um, he tells a story in the Gulag Archipelago uh, in his chapter on interrogations about, you know, one woman, an old woman who'd been brought in, and she had, you know, had the, uh, you know, some Orthodox bishop to her house <laughs> for lunch, and they wanted to know where he was. And she said to them, you know, I'm ready to, to, to meet God right now. So you, you can tear me into little pieces, you can do whatever you want, but I will tell you nothing. <laughs> and and, and yeah. says, you know, what was amazing is that this so befuddled the interrogators that they just finally let the old woman go. And, uh, you know, it's that kind of incredibly thick faith and a casting of one's lot into the hands of God that, that he ultimately regarded as, as, you know, really the goal of this, this, uh, this, this life. And it's what got people through the, through the camps. And, and so that's why he could, he could thank God for his time in the prisons, that he, he discovered these realities. You know, the picture of, of Christianity that we sometimes get, I think particularly here in the West, is one of sort of supernatural stoicism, right? You know, um, Christianity gives you the Christianity gives you the strength and fortitude to muddle through this life so you can experience something better in the next. I think it's probably the, the, the stereotype. And... Solzhenitsyn seems to offer something, I think, a little bit more, I don't know, manly to a certain extent as, as far as his understanding of Christianity. Yeah, I mean, for him, it's, you know, this gives you the strength to fight back in an, in an important way. And, I mean, you know, you say it's a, it's a very manly thing, but it's something that can inspire even an old woman. Um, and that's, that's what's remarkable, is that his thing was, you know, not just live not by lies, don't let, you know, if... It, it, you know, the best, it, the worst case scenario, you know, you're forced 
to listen to the lie, but he says, let it not come through you. But his, his point was much stronger, is that for those who were, who were very strong, they could not just not let lies come through their mouth, but they could actually speak out and speak the truth. And for him, that was, as an artist, the most important thing. He was not about art for art's sake or, or you know, writing for writing's sake, but instead his, his whole idea, you know, as we mentioned earlier, was that, uh, that basically an artist is, is, has to exercise a kind of office of prophecy. And a prophet is not somebody who just predicts the future, but speaks out about the way things are right now in a truthful way. And it was only through his depictions. You obviously have some secular people who act on conscience. But in all of his stories, in all, you know, both the fictional ones and the the non-fictional ones, what's interesting is that it's the religious figures, those who take God seriously, whether they're Ukrainian Catholics or Russian Baptists or whoever, it's only those people who really have the courage to act on conscience and to speak out. And that's his goal, that's his goal for everyone, and that's what I think he encourages us to do today. What do you make of, um, well, I, I think this might be one of the dangers um, in our current setting. There, there's an inc- in order to stand up for the truth, um, it, with Solzhenitsyn presents it as you're sharing. You, you need to have this understanding that God exists, that there's and that there's a, there's an afterlife. There's a there's a judgment um, that we'll be held accountable to, and we ought to have you know theological hope in, that God will keep His promises about eternal life and beatitude. But increasingly, we're seeing um, atheism, or at least a practical atheism, really pervade, especially in younger people, which to me would might be suggestive of, a, that would create more vulnerability around manipulation. Because if, you're, if your view is only to this, to this world, as Solzhenitsyn was pointing, a, a kind of materialism, a kind of luxury, a kind of comfort, only to be found in this world, well, then you're, you might be far more susceptible to being manipulated by, say, whether it's government forces, large corporations, or, th- or things like that, p- power structures, because you don't have, because your view of God has been eclipsed. What do you, what do you, that, so that's my hypothesis. What do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> I, well, no, I think that, that's, that's really what he's getting at with this idea of materialism, right? It's not it's not just that you only love, you know, luxury goods, but you know, materialism in a philosophical sense is that, you know, this world is all there is. <laughs> and if this world is all there is, people will do almost anything uh, you know, to keep this thing going. But right. as you point out, they're often they're often suckers about that. And mm-hmm. that's you know, Solzhenitsyn has you know, has some fun with you know, depictions of himself in various of his works, sometimes directly, sometimes through other characters, you know, that as a, as a kind of convinced Marxist, he was kind of a sucker for the lies that were being told. And I think it's, it's absolutely right that, you know, this is one of the things that, uh, that we have a problem with today, is that when people forget God, uh, you know, it's, it's a line attributed to Chesterton, and Solzhenitsyn, as Joseph Pierce points out in one of his chapter in our book, was a big fan of Chesterton, but the line attributed Chesterton that when people stop believing in God, that it's not that they believe in nothing, it's that they'll believe in anything. Mm. And I think that that fits very well with uh, what Solzhenitsyn thinks about these things. 
We are talking with uh, Dr. David B. Devil, co-editor of the new book that just came out, Solzhenitsyn and American Culture. And one aspect that we've kind of we've kind of danced around and we we've touched on, but we haven't looked at it directly, is the the, the role of community in Solzhenitsyn um, and how important I, I guess community and finding finding those human connections within smaller communities rather than the broad-based bureaucracy that tends to grow up in, in like the Soviet system or even in American capitalism. Um, and and you, you mentioned Solzhenitsyn as a prophet. How much is he, is he kind of a, a prophetic voice about the, the importance of community? I think he's a tremendously uh, important voice. And I mean, one of the things that we've been kind of touching around as well is, you know, the approach to sort of mass media um, and Solzhenitsyn felt like that was a real... Pr- it's not that he was against media in general and things like that, because when he was in the Soviet Union, he would listen to the Voice of America and other sort of uh, broadcasts from the West trying to get the truth out. But he had, he had a realization that our sort of mass media culture took people away from the people who are right there in front of you. Uh, you know, and I mentioned that he has this in the Gulag Archipelago. One of the main themes is how much he loved being in prison. Well, one of the things about being in prison <laughs> is that you have people right there with you, and they are the only people there. And so he learned a lot about community from being in a prison, and that's what inspired him in part to realize what had been great uh, you know, in the pre-Soviet era. Even if Russian villages were not you know, idyllic places, they were places of real community. And when he moved to Vermont, he realized that this small town life, uh, you know, in, in a, a place like Vermont was, was something that he understood and something that was in danger, in part from our addiction to mass media, but also from our addiction to making, every, making a federal case out of everything and putting all of our weight on these higher levels of government and higher levels of, you know, sort of corporate, corporate life. Uh, and I think that's what he wants us to rediscover is, uh, is that we can actually interact with other people who are these marvelous images of God and have something to offer to us. And with that, we are going to have to wrap things up. We've been talking with Dr. David Diebel and his new book on Solzhenitsyn. Alexander Solzhenitsyn is an incredibly important figure um, that we all should uh, read and study. And with uh, scholars like Dr. David Diebel, makes it so much more accessible. Uh, you know what? The holidays are going to be here before you know it. This is going to make a great stocking stuffer. Souls and Eatson and American Culture, The Russian Soul in the West. Where can we get this book? You can get it on uh, at Notre Dame Press. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, if you go to the Murphy Institute site at the University of St. Thomas website, we're going to be holding a webinar with a couple of our, a couple of our chapter writers, Gary Saul Morrison, uh, famous Russian studies scholar at Northwestern, and Dan Mahoney, uh, Catholic political philosopher at Assumption College on October 29th. Uh, so if, if anybody's interested in hearing more from a couple of our contributors, uh, go, go to the site, stthomas.edu, and look for the Murphy Institute. Fantastic. We'll do that. And with that, that is all the time we have for the Catholic Cave, for Dr. Davil, for Timothy O'Donnell, Mark Tuttle, I'm Kent Blanford. Until next time be holy. Did you miss something in this show or just want to hear it again? Podcasts of this and all our other great local programs are available 24-7 at catholicradioindy.org.